What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Hi, welcome to The Cutting Room. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. Well, I'm back from New York, and I met a lot of amazing people at EditFest from around the world, including James R. from London and Sasha B. from Australia. If you want to join in on the fun of EditFest, there's going to be another one in L.A. in August. You can check it out at the American Cinema Editor's website. Now, if you've been to our site lately, you've noticed that we've done some major updates. You can now actually search for articles, videos, blogs, everything. You can create your own account and submit your own articles, videos, and ideas. You can check it out at artoftheguillotine.com. This update moves us one step closer to our goal of sharing information and ideas from editors around the world. This episode of The Cutting Room is part two of my interview with Michael Miller. Miller and I discuss his work on some of the cult classics like Farce of the Penguins and Strangers with Candy. One thing you'll notice when you're listening to this that it's a bit noisy. We actually met at a coffee shop in LA and we're on the street, so... Bear with us as you listen to it. There's some amazing things that Miller says, and we've done our best to remove the background noise. And now on with the show. In Ghost World, there's the experimental film that the teacher puts on. <laughs> yeah. Now, were you given the pleasure of cutting that, or was that already supplied? Um, we did cut it, but I mean, it was, uh, God, uh, I just hear Ileana <laughs> Douglas uh, kind of chanting that uh, when you bring it up, and it makes me laugh. I mean, it was just, again, you know, something like that is just, that one's almost edit-proof. I mean, it's, it was just indestructible. It was going to be funny. And you just had to make it, you know, that one you didn't have to find the humor in because the humor was there. It was a matter of making it believably that character's film. So that character is not a Hollywood filmmaker with Hollywood filmmaking tools and techniques available. And Yeah, yeah. I love a Bolex. Particularly spring wine. Now you edited Farce of the Penguins. Yes, I did. And that was very... Uh, I, I wanted to know how you approached cutting this film because when I watched it, it's it's almost like cutting the documentary. Like you almost you were, did you record the audio first, then cut it? Did you cut the audio yes. as you did it? Yes, we did, and it's a, it was a very interesting process. And you know, I think we were stymied a little bit by budget because in the end. It would have been nicer if we could have made their mouths move. Yeah. Um, well, they, they referenced and, it in the films. So. Yeah. <laughs> and, and in some ways, part of the editing exercise was syncing vocal rhythms with body movements of the penguins. I mean, we're very fortunate that Bob Saget is, is a good writer and director, and so we began... That's exactly how we began. We began as though it was almost as though it were animation. <laughs> with a script and simultaneous viewing of mountains and mountains and mountains of stock footage. But we had this template, which was Bob's recording, which he did in all of the characters' voices. And then found footage that applied and synchronized penguin body movements to the vocals. What was difficult is that Bob didn't want to tie any of the wonderful actors and comedians he got to do the final to his vocal rhythms. And so it meant a lot of recutting when they finally got the final voiceovers in there. Um, 
so it was an interactive process, but it absolutely started with laying down a temp. Was it almost track. like cutting a dock too? Because you have all the stock footage. Yeah. On top of that, you have to almost build the, the soundtrack first, then bring in the audio. And yeah, absolutely, and, and also organizing the footage, um, which fantastic assistant editor Byron Wong did, you know, had to be organized almost in documentary fashion so that, you know, we knew we had penguins near water, penguins near ice, penguins sliding on their bellies, penguins swimming. You know, it was all organized much more in documentary fashion than it was because how can you have you know footage organized by scene they yeah. didn't they didn't perform scenes for us so. yeah. how was it working with Bob Saget for that was it it was great I mean he's, he's one of the most generous sweet and funny people on the planet um, it, it was great because Bob's a very busy guy and it's the kind of film that re required a lot of time on very small detail oriented work which to the person not doing to a person not doing the work would have been like watching paint dry and so Bob had the patience and also the busy schedule to let that work be done and never apply pressure I never felt pressure like oh my god you know I've got to get this thing that should really take two hours, I have to get it done in 15 minutes because Bob's going to be breathing down my neck. So he, you know, he definitely, I said, you know, he respects actors and comedians, but I think he respects all craftspeople in, in filmmaking. And, uh, and through Bob, I've met, you know, Bob loves comics and, and I have met great comedians through Bob and, uh, you know, people who are icons to me. Um, I met uh, Jerry Stiller and Ann Merritt at Bob's house. We both knew Rodney Dangerfield. Um, when I, uh, Bob and I met through a, a producer named David Permit, and this is not an editing story by any stretch, but uh, David, wonderful producer and knows everyone, and and we had this idea of doing a, a, a documentary with Rodney Dangerfield using old clips because he had them all I mean he had I, I watched clips of Rodney like I think from you bet your life or not you bet your life but this is your life I mean when he was a, a shingle salesman uh, when Rodney got his star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame we were already like talking about doing this doc and so there was documentary footage and Rodney was a great mentor to many comedians because he owned a club in New York called Rodney's of all things and and they'd close at 4 a.m. and then Rodney would stay up like way after the sun came up giving notes to these young comics and oh, wow. talking about their acts and talking about the business and and so they all showed up when he got his star I mean everyone was there you know Leno was there even though it was in the middle of a work day doing the Tonight Show and 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 Bob Bob said, uh, Rodney was like a father to me. Well, Rodney's been like a father to me. He told me I'd never amount to anything and he beat the crap out of me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's how I met Bob, um, over that joke. Um, for Strangers with Candy, did you guys, well, I have two questions for that. Um, working with Amy Sedaris, 
because she was the writer and she also created the original series and everything. How was she in the editing room? Because she, she seems very hyper and excited. And really, <laughs> was it like hard to focus? Actually, you know, no, not at all. I mean, I'm laughing partly because the last time I saw Amy, was, I was sitting right here. And she and Paul Danello were walking by on the street. They had just had breakfast at Toast. Um, but, uh, and they live in New York, which was kind of odd and out of the blue. Um, but really, that was a very collaborative show, both the series and the movie. And so I guess the show was, has a, a deep history. Uh, Paul Danello, Stephen Colbert, and Amy were in a touring company of Second City. And so they knew each other so well and had worked you know, on comedy and improvisational comedy forever and had done a series together before Strangers and then I think created Strangers together. It came out of this strangest combination of things. I, I'm not sure I even have this straight, but Frederick Wiseman, a great documentary filmmaker, made a documentary in the late 1960s called High School, yeah. which was of course very serious and, and almost sad in a way, um, but somehow Colbert and Danello and Amy Sedaris watching that documentary and also watching a documentary about a woman who, who actually is a little bit like Jerry Blank, who had spent a lot of time in prison and then went back to high school, and their own insanity yeah. stirred it up and you get that show. And um, the truth is, I, I welcomed moments when Amy was on the cutting room because she's hysterically funny, but she was almost never there. It was really, you know, Paul Danello directed the film and I could talk endlessly about our process on that film um, because I, I think in a small way, my experience of editing that film led me to deal with a big issue for editors today. Um, we were shot, that film was shot in New York in the summer of 2004 and the Republican National Convention was there and it was hot and I was getting tired of this city being like an armed camp because there was so much security for the convention. Um, and we were cutting right above the Ed Sullivan Theater and I enjoyed that. I mean, that was great. Like cutting at Letterman's, where Letterman does a show, is a lot of fun. But Paul had this house in upstate New York that he hadn't been in, and he he said, "You know, how would you feel about editing upstate?" And you know, I sort of said, "When do we leave?" And we got up there and set up the Abbot in a room in the house, and I stayed at the house and. I can't tell you how great that is. I mean, I'm cutting it home now, but I've been an advocate of it ever since doing it there. First of all, I realized you can edit anywhere and you've always been able to edit anywhere. And I began to think about my own career. You know, we edited Manhattan in the Stanhope Hotel because Woody was building a cutting room, but it wasn't ready yet. Raging Bull because Marty wanted to like be able to look at footage and even edit a little bit when he was shooting. The chem editing, machine was put on a truck and just like moved all over the city, location to location. And, um, and of course, 
with the Avid, you can really do that. And so there we were in upstate New York at home, essentially. And what I loved about that was a lot of things. One is you don't have to be on this rigid schedule that's built around commuting and, and when vendors are open and when things are open. Uh, and not that we weren't disciplined about working in the morning, but we would take fairly long breaks in the middle of the day. The great thing is if you had an inspiration at 9 o'clock at night, you could go and boot up the system and, and try it out. Um, whereas here, you know, what, I would drive, get in my car, drive to Universal, you know, stop at the gate, show my ID, get to my cutting room, open the door, boot up and think, what was that I wanted to do again? So that was tremendous and I love being out of Hollywood um, and out of a city. And it's just a different rhythm, you know, you're making movies for people and then if you're gonna go out to lunch with real people all around you, it's, it's a very different thing from going to a commissary where everyone does what you do or going to a, a restaurant on Third Street where Everybody's talking about films and deals and whatever. So I love that. And uh, yeah, and those guys are great. I mean, uh, just as funny as can be, as nice as can be. But yeah, I wish Amy had been around more. I, I wish Steven had been around more. He was working on The Daily Show at the time, which was right down the street from where, yeah, where Letterman's offices were, so. The film is a precursor to the show. Like, it's sort of supposed to lead into the show. Yeah. How did that affect your cutting of the story? If Did it handcuff you in the sense that you couldn't change things with the characters or anything? I or? think when they, you know, when they cast a different actor to play, rather, when they cast Dan Hedaya to play the father, um, my hands were freed. Um, we could kind of do, uh, there was a lot of license there. Um, and I don't think, you know, the, the great thing about working with the creators of the show is they, were, they would automatically be the most sensitive about those things. Um, now, did you feel um, any pressure when you did test screenings or anything? Because it's pretty racy, some of the jokes. Um, you know, we didn't have very formal tests for that. I mean, I think the largest screening we ever had was about 50 people, and that show has such a tremendous fan base that people who would come to a screening of Strangers with Candy were gonna know what they were gonna see, I think. Um, just heard that, I haven't seen it, but I heard one of the actresses from that show is now on the entourage. Um, one of these science fair competitors. Uh, my last question for you, and I ask this of everyone, is uh, what's your favorite guilty pleasure film to watch? Wow, that's a great one. I have so many. Um, God, I have so many, and I don't know. I mean, wow, I'm going to have to give it some thought because so many of them have morphed from guilty pleasures into, why do I feel guilty about this pleasure? <laughs> um, let me think. I mean, it, it's odd. It's an odd one for me to answer and I'll come I'm, I'm vamping while I try to come up with an answer because most of the films I watch most often aren't guilty pleasure I mentioned that I watched Dog Day Afternoon or have certainly over the years I've watched Godfather and Godfather Part 2 a million times I've watched eight and a half at least a half a million times um, 
probably watched Blow Up a fair number of times. And I love watching great films, you know, I love watching Kurosawa films, Antonioni films. I think the 70s, you know, that, that period that Peter Biskin describes in Easy Riders and Raging Bulls was a, was a great golden era, but I also love Hollywood's true golden era. I love watching Hawks films and Ford films, Hitchcock films. I'm trying, I'm trying to come up with a guilty pleasure. I don't know, you know, because, I mean, and what I mean by films that have morphed is if Ferris Bueller, for example, was ever a guilty pleasure, it's not. You know, if Fast Times was ever a guilty pleasure, it's not. It's a, it's a genuine pleasure. Um, oh, okay, I got it. I got it. This is a true guilty pleasure of mine. <laughs> Losing it. Okay. Have you seen it? No, I haven't. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's great. Um, here's the premise. <laughs> and plus, when I say this group of names together, well, okay, Tom Cruise and Jackie Earl Haley, among others, take a trip to Tijuana to lose their virginity. <laughs> yeah, and Shelley Long is in there as well. So Shelley Long, Jackie Earl Haley, Tom Cruise, and and I mean, it's an interesting one. I, I wish I knew more about the history of the film. I know a little about the history of the film. If you look at the music credit, the, the composing credit, believe, I hope I'm right on this. Sam, you'll be able to check it on IMDb, but I think it scores by someone named Ken Wanberg. And Ken, a brilliant music editor, who was John Williams' editor. And so my guess is, they thought, hey, why not? Maybe he's not working. Look, you know, Bernard Herrmann scored those early low-budget Brian De Palma films. Let's call John Williams. And uh, that's my guess. Like, I don't know how you pull Kenny Wanberg out of a hat and have him score your film, but man, I love that film as a guilty pleasure. There was something, I mean, so what do I love about it? I haven't seen it in years and years, so I'd probably like go watch it and hate it, but... Um, <laughs> But you know what, I mean, there's something really special about Tom Cruise right from the get-go. You can um, almost see it. Yeah. yeah, and you see it there, you see it in that film. But I'll stick with losing it as my, as my number one. Well, thank you for allowing me to interview you. Oh, my pleasure, really. Well, that was my final interview with Michael Miller. I'd like to thank Miller, as well as Jenny McCormick, and my producer, Lauren Woodcock. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.